I do think that human nature has an enormous amount in common, no matter what country you're in. There are huge cultural differences. But if you put you and me in a certain historical circumstance, I think we would probably behave in pretty much the same way as somebody who is already in that circumstance. I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo, and this is Kobo in Conversation. My guest today is Edward Rutherford. He's the best-selling author of the books Sarum, London, and the Dublin Saga, just to name a few. His books are deeply researched, multifaceted views of places and times spinning out stories of family legacies and the courses of nations. His new novel, China, is a saga that starts in the 1830s during the Qin Dynasty in China and the reign of Queen Victoria in the United Kingdom, when Britain's appetite for tea and the sales of opium to pay for it led to a series of military conflicts known to many as the Opium Wars. The novel traces families, traitors, peasants, leaders, rebels, and courtiers from that first clash of two empires to the decline of imperial China through the Maoist Revolution and onwards. Edward Rutherford, welcome to Kobo. Thank you so much. Delighted to be back. You don't do small stories. <laughs> your your books span centuries of history, generations of characters. Your first historical novel, Sarum, covered, I believe, 10,000 years in the vicinity of Stonehenge. You've looked at Russia, Paris, London, New York, Dublin, uh the book Dublin Foundation traces the lives of Irish clans from 430 AD to 1533, which is practically a short story by comparison. Uh, do you ever think, um, I'm just going to write a short story of uh, two characters on a camping trip that lasts for 48 hours? Um, yes, I do. Actually, I think of that approximately once every single day when I'm writing these terribly long books. <laughs> I think to myself, why am I doing this? Um China was uh, a little a little different in that um, Chinese histories are somewhat repetitive in the sense that you go from dynasty to dynasty, dynasty followed by a period of, uh, of chaos, followed by a new dynasty and so forth. Um, and, you know, you could do it for 4,000 years or you could do it for 2,000 years, uh, but I could not see any way to control that material. And... Um, uh, I had really, I'd been wanting to do a book on China since my teens. Um, Russia and China were the two big, you know, subjects I wanted to study, get my teeth into. Um, but I couldn't figure out technically how to do China. And I, I really, uh, I've reached the age where though I still have a fair amount of energy, um, I don't think I've got quite the nervous energy that I would have needed uh, the emotional energy to do something like Ruska, which was the novel on, on Russia, uh, which has to, to tackle some really tough material. So um, I looked at, at the history of China. I didn't want to do the 20th century for a number of reasons. Um, a, a number of people have written on 20th century China who were there experiencing it. Uh, and I thought I was going to, I wasn't going to be able to do a good a good job on that. Um, but the period of the 19th century, the more I read up that period, the more it seemed to me that almost everything that's going on today is explained by that enormous conflict, that, uh, that face-off between a China, which back in the days of the Ming dynasty, or dynasty, whichever you prefer. Um, China had been relatively open. That was the age where you get enormous exports of, you know, porcelain, where China actually sends fleets, trading fleets to Africa. Um, but then after the fall of the Ming uh, uh, dynasty and um, at the start of what we may call the Manchu uh, dynasty rule, um, China becomes closed, closed right up. And as a result, it falls behind technologically. And so while the, the Chinese are all powerful in their part of the world and all the kingdoms around come and bring them tribute, and if there's any trouble, the Chinese army, which is basically, uh, you know, bowmen supplemented by uh, men carrying totally out of date muskets, 
um, uh, you know, they they are seem to be all powerful. And of course, when they uh, come up against the British, who have this opium trade, which is totally immoral, uh, really, um, the the Chinese are terribly badly mauled. And then not only the Brits, but everybody else uh, and the Japanese uh, towards the end of the century start taking great bites out of China, um, taking over Korea, which was a sort of subsidiary uh, kingdom. The French move into Vietnam, um, Taiwan, which had been a refuge actually for the Ming. But anyway, uh, Taiwan, which had been uh, under China's control, gets taken by the Japanese. Um, and so on, uh, and they and, and oh, and Manchuria gets gets take or parts of it get taken over by the Russians under forced treaties, and all of this produces an enormous sense of being uh, under rapacious attack on the part of the Chinese. Now we can talk about the Opium Wars, which is very very interesting, and why the British ever did such a thing. But my point at this moment is simply to say that so much of China today is explained by this terrible experience they had in the 19th century. And I think that I'm, I'm very disturbed indeed by what's happening just at this precise moment in China. But even with that, I still think that it's a very good thing for Western diplomats and politicians to understand the context, the deep historical context of countries with which they are dealing. So I hope that my, my novel, which uh, draws on a, a work of a lot of wonderful scholars, I hope that it may serve some small, very small, useful purpose. The events that you describe, especially in the, um, in the first part of the book where the, the opium wars are ongoing, is in many ways, the the beginning of what's referred to as the century of humiliation, you know, the the sense of being oppressed by other powers, of having territorial bites taken out of what had traditionally been China. And is that something that was uh, in your mind as we seem to be clearly coming out of that century, at least in terms of China's concept of itself, certainly how we're looking at it geopolitically, that we're about to enter a new and different age and a new and different kind of engagement with China as a country. I, I, I give away my, my own cast of mind when I say that I am profoundly uncomfortable when anybody talks about anything being new. Um, <laughs> which, which maybe is also the, the admonition of every good historian. I, I, I don't know, but I, in any case, uh, I mean, the, 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 the British, uh, it's extraordinary, really, you know, when you think of the history of New York, I, I'm not leaving the point, uh, think of the history of New York, you know, how did that place become important? Well, because of the fur trade. Uh, and why the fur trade? Well, well, because actually there was, a, in the 17th century, there was a mini ice age, and suddenly everybody in Europe wanted felt hats. So out of a commodity, which is not actually all important, comes eventually an empire. Uh, in the same way, the, the, the opium wars came out of the fact that the British got a taste for Chinese tea. I say Chinese, China tea, we call it now. Indian tea didn't exist at that time. All tea came from China. Hence the expression like, you know, I wouldn't do it for all the tea in China, going back to the, those those days. So the, the British come and, um, uh, and want to buy more and more tea, um, but they have to pay for it with silver because the Chinese government needs silver. And there's a world silver shortage at that time. So the British finally work out a triangular trade in India under British rule and the parts that were, they, uh, they cultivate opium. And then they ship it, not directly into China, but to, to, the, um, to the shores of China where smugglers and pirates take it on shore and pay them <clears throat> with Chinese silver. Then they use the Chinese silver to pay the Chinese for the tea. 
And as the English got wanted more and more tea, the English sold more and more opium, and the emperors of China protested quite rightly. Um, but they also were so cut off from the world, they refused to have any kind of diplomatic, you know, relations, because as far as they were concerned, we Western barbarians were just there to pay them tribute, um, that all sorts of things came together and it came to a conflict. And it came to two wars, to be precise, in the second of which uh, the British and the French, I may add, together came and looted and then burnt down one of the, one of the wonders of the world, which was the, um, the Summer Palace just outside Beijing. So that is what set it all off. But the system of Chinese government by uh, mandarins who had to do these exams um, and who were working directly for the, the emperor, or the whole system worked for the emperor, the amount of control that was attempted, though not always achieved, the corruption of the Mandarin class in the 19th century, which is exactly what at the moment they're trying to get away from, the corruption within the Communist Party and so forth. All these things are very, very common. Also that, you know, Confucianism, the idea that the good state uh, derives from uh, sons and daughters obeying their parents and parents obeying the emperor and so forth. Uh, all this is quite, I mean, the, the, the present clampdown uh, that's going on is incredibly con Confucian. So that's what I, that goes just back to my point. I try to humanize everything. I'm, that's what I do. Uh, obviously I try to make a living by spinning a good yarn. And I like doing that. But um, without simple human stories of people like you, me, and the Emperor of China, uh, history doesn't make any sense. You've talked before, and I think even the last time we spoke um, back in 2013, about drawing on the lives of ordinary human people. Uh, and in this case, in China, traders, landowners, mandarins, eunuchs. How do you select these people out of the you know, hundreds of millions of candidates in a, in a story as vast as this? How indeed? Well, um, I, I, no doubt I could have done it better, but uh, I, needed an, I needed an English trader. Um, if I was going to tell the story of the Opium Wars, I needed somebody to oppose him. And the English were opposed by actually an incorruptible Mandarin uh, called Commissioner Lin. And rather than, ha uh, Commissioner Lin does indeed appear in the story, but it's mo mainly, I like to put someone in beside, you know, if, if you were, if I was going to do a story about Henry VIII, I'd need a courtier close to Henry VIII to interact with him, you know. So I have a Chinese Mandarin who's trying, but not always succeeding to be a good Confucian. Um, and I needed a Manchu because that's actually a rather a complex thing because the rulers of China at that time were not indigenous Chinese, but were these people from the steppes above. I won't call them Mongolians because that's not quite right, but anyway, Manchu. Um, so I needed all these people. The biggest uh, difficulty of choice, in fact, came uh, to do with the Chinese imperial palace the uh, Forbidden City, as it was called, has this long history uh, in the 19th century, mid 19th century, when it was ruled of in, in, in effect uh, by the widowed concubine of an emperor. Um, and this extraordinary woman, the Dowager Empress, as she's called, um, ruled with a, a great survival skills, whether she ruled wisely or not is another matter. And what was going on in there? Well, a very strange, um, a very strange Englishman turns up at the end of the 19th century. And he's a sinologist, and he gets a lot of Chinese friends and hears all the gossip and claims to be a very close friend of the aging empress. Personally, I don't believe a word of all of that. But um, and he writes with a man called Fry, he writes this great uh, uh, history 
of the court of 19th century China. And about, you know, 50 years later, historians suddenly began to realize he couldn't have known half of this stuff. And it's probably all fraud. The latest thinking is that it's probably a lot of it is gossip. It may not be true or it may be uh, partly true. Um, uh, but this man uh, meant that we all thought we knew about the court and we didn't really. So how do I get someone in the court to tell a story that may not be quite true? Well, you do that by having someone tell the story in the first person. Because if it's in the first person, then you're just getting their view and you can't actually rely. So in a sense, I'm in the clear, you see. <laughs> and who who gets into the palace? Well, you know, either concubines or uh, servant women or the several thousand eunuchs. So a, a eunuch is a kind of interesting person uh, for you and me who've never encountered a eunuch. Um, and they were very, very important in the court. So I think to myself, okay, now the, the difficulty with eunuchs is that they tend to be typecast, you know, um, and one's got a sort of fixed idea of what they'll be like. And I thought, now, how can I make my guy different? And in my research, I discovered that there were a few married eunuchs. Instead of being castrated when they were boys, these men had married, had families, and then in the hope of getting pickings in the palace and being short of money, they, as fully grown men, got castrated and would go back quite often in the evening to their wives. And some of them had neighbors who, who thought they were some kind of merchant and didn't even know they were palace eunuchs. Now, that's where it starts as a novelist. That's where it starts getting interesting. And then you, see, then you think, of, okay, so what was their relation, not only with the, with the empress, um, what about their relation with the other eunuchs? How did the other eunuchs take to them? And I suddenly realized they might be kind of jealous because these guys were having it, you know, both ways. So that started to give me a good, it's, it's actually, technically, it's what I would call the ugly duckling syndrome. Mm -hmm. If you want to tell a story about ducks, ducks are kind of boring. Um, so it's no good just having one duck amongst many. But of course, the minute you have the ugly duck who's going to turn into a swan, then you have a story. And so it's the same kind of principle, you see, of storytelling. So I had this guy, Lacanale, who, again, he bucks the system. He gets in pr promotion when he shouldn't. He gets too close to the empress and gets away with it. And then finally makes an outrageous claim, which of course could be true in a sense. Nobody knows how the, he wasn't the last emperor of China. He was actually the penultimate, but anyway, uh, the last, uh, almost last emperor of China. Nobody quite knows how he dies, but they think the palace eunuchs did it and they must have done it because Sir Xi, this uh, dowager empress told them to. So, Needless to say, my guy, I'm giving away the story. He claims that he did it and so on. Uh, uh, you ask how I put a thing together. That, that's how I put mm -hmm. a thing together. The, the question of aperture is very, is very interesting to me. Were there, were there sections of history at this time that you wanted to reach for and you just decided it would open up a whole other you know, wing of this story that that you weren't prepared to uh, to deal with? I did my best and you've got the best I could do for the period I covered. Sure. Um, but was I also looking at other apertures? Yes. Uh, I haven't said this in an interview, but there's no reason why I shouldn't. Um, I, I did indeed look at the 20th century, and in fact, I had a plot, which was a different plot. It still had the eunuch in it, but I had a different plot with a different heroine um, that took us through to 1939. And the thing got so unwieldy, um, I found myself so compelled to try. It's, I, I don't want to get sententious about it, but I mean, I felt a certain... Um, 
a certain duty to try to get the story, which is awfully complex, right, because diplomatically and historically, it matters. So I spent mm -hmm. more time than I had ever originally meant to on the opium wars and the aftermath thereof. Um, and the book is a little shorter than some of my books. It's a lot longer than I told the editors it would be. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is an occupational hazard if you're one of my editors, but they did get a little antsy. Um, they must be getting used to you by now, though. There, yes, <laughs> there comes so a time when I, they I'd have they a little bit of it. illness myself, and seven years had passed um, mm -hmm. before I, you know, managed to pull this to a close. Um, so I reshaped, uh, and it works, I think. I, technically, I think it works, the plot I have. Um, but otherwise, I would have had, a, 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 you would have had um, up to 1939. And I, there was, in fact, a, a final chapter, which was set in Shanghai in the 20s, which we, which we cut. We mm -hmm. cut from the book. Um, Lacanel just got into it. It was his sort of last, as it were, last gasp. Um, but it it was it was like an extension, if you know what I mean. I mean, my editors, who were wonderful, just said, you know what? Because they'd originally wanted, you know, more of the twentieth century. They said, you know, this thing actually finishes. It really finishes. <laughs> she says so she does, you know. Uh, and and also we could cut some pages. Um, so that chapter remains. I would love, I shan't, but somebody should go back. Uh, the, the, the period in the 1920s of Shanghai is so rich. Mm. It's the most wonderful period. And as I say, I won't do it, but somebody out there should do that, should write a big novel of Shanghai. There is a lot of discussion and controversy right now about historical voice. You know, who can speak in whose voice? Is it okay to step into another culture, uh, describe their feelings about events? And in some ways, that is your stock in trade. Mm. Do you do you think about approaching characters and cultures differently as that conversation has progressed? Okay, so my editors, especially in New York, were going nuts about this before I started, or actually not before I started, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, because as I said, it's been ten, seven years in the making. So during the early part, suddenly I was getting these messages. Oh my God, you mustn't do this, you mustn't do that. Um, and as you say, it's not just my stock in trade, it's any novelist's stock in trade. I mean, the, the old argument, uh, it's not the same, but it is a first cousin to it, is, well, it's no good writing about people in the 17th century because you can't understand them. Well, I don't buy that, actually. Um, I write about, as any novelist does, men and women. Now, um, I'm speaking, you understand, strictly, technically, as a writer. As a writer, I would love to be a hermaphrodite. Um, I have no idea how that would feel. But my point is simply that I would be a more universal uh, creature. Um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and um, I mean, say, uh, Tolstoy is a wonderful writer. Um, he has actually very, uh, I'm sorry, Pache, Anna Karenina, which is supposed to be such a fantastic novel. But I mean, he has very little understanding of women, actually, I think. Uh, Dickens had none, uh, and so forth. But, you know, many, many writers do understand a lot. And I'm sort of in between. I make no claims whatsoever to understanding women. But um, but I ask women, you know, what would what would you feel in such and such a circumstance? Would you feel this? And they'll say, oh, no, I wouldn't feel that at all. And I, I listen. That's one thing which uh, I really learned to do once I got married. Um, listen, because you're going to be in such trouble if you don't. And so um, uh, what I then found was, and forgive me if I go on for a minute, but it's, it's about how the human mind works. Once you listen and you say, okay, so my character feels this and not what I thought she might feel, then I run it through my own software, so to speak. And we ask, there's enough in common in there that usually by the time it comes out again, I ask the same person, what, does that work? And they say, oh yeah, that works. So it, if you get enough of the groundwork, you, you can run with it. Now, 
something a little bit like that happens if you're trying to write about uh, the Chinese. Um, first of all, I did a lot of research. Um, a lot of a lot of recent Chinese scholarship. The same thing happened with Russia, is actually written by Westerners or Chinese people living in the West, uh, because the constraints were so great. You know, uh, I mean, when, when I was doing Ruska, the Russia book, you know, there there were no textbook, there were no history books in the schools. China, uh, um, Russians would come up to me, young Russians, when I was traveling, and ask me to tell uh, them about their history because they had no access so in, in 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 a different way but um a lot of good work on, on china is done necessarily uh, during the 20th century anyway from outside china uh, that being said i also happen to have through my kids and through personal friendships a number of uh, chinese friends and that is to say people who would either well, whose parents had been Chinese and still spoke Chinese in the home and their kids were brought up as um, Chinese Americans or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and I got to know them very well and consulted them a lot. And they checked out the book as well. But, you know, some of it, I've got to say something to you, if I may, on that, because it's this huge subject with everybody at the moment. You know, a I do think that human nature has an enormous amount in common, no matter what country you're in. There are huge cultural differences. But if you put you and me in a certain historical circumstance, I think we would probably behave in pretty much the same way as somebody from another nation who is already in that circumstance. And so um, I do think that all, all novels from all countries are stories about recognizable human beings. Um, and if you get some of, if you could learn a lot of the circumstances and you listen carefully to people who may have direct knowledge of it, which of course you can't do in previous centuries, but you can still talk to Russians a lot. I mean, the Russian, my Russian friends loved certain, actually adored one chapter, which I loved of Ruska, which my Western editors took out because uh, they said nothing happens. Of course, nothing happens. That's the whole point. But, you know, you know this stuff. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I'm prepared to go out and then, you know, if you write any book at all, then you've got to be prepared to take criticism. Um, I knew a lovely man. He had two careers, was successful in each of them. And I was talking to him. He was quite an old man at that time. And I said, did you ever think of another career? And he said, oh, well, of course, I, I wanted to be an architect all along. And I said, well, why didn't you become an architect then? And he said, oh, the thought of designing a building and it's up there for everyone to see. And then people go by and say, who designed that terrible building? He said, I couldn't, I couldn't face it. Well, if you write a book, you have to face that every day. And so in this case, I have to face the possibility that people will come and say, you, you've completely got the Chinese wrong. You should never have attempted to write about them. Interestingly, nobody's said that to me yet. You can be the first. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to, to move on to talking about place uh, because some of your books, you have direct first-hand knowledge of geography. Mm -hmm. Sarum, you've spent time in the area around Stonehenge. You've oh. lived in New York. You've yes. lived in London. Yes. You've, you've family in Paris. Yes. And a lot of time in Ireland, too. When you're looking at a place where you don't have that same, that same first-hand feel for kind of geography and the texture of the mm -hmm. place, are there things that you try to do or kind of replicate from place to place as you, as you try to bring some of that in? I think you have to go to the place. I mean, my my particular story was that um, I mean, I, I was uh, there were a lot of deaths in my family. I really um, I had to deal with a lot of them and and the sorting out afterwards, which is com completely exhausting, as anybody who's been through that process knows very well. Um, and I was quite I, I didn't have a depression, but I mean, I was absolutely worn out, um, and I got pneumonia. Um, and my doctor told me to stop. And at that time, I, as I say, I'd always wanted years to do something on China, but I, I thought I it couldn't be done. 
and I did actually stop work, which is a very difficult thing for me to do um, because I get antsy very quickly. But anyway, I did, and I took a rest. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to go on. I, I can't. I'm going to write about China, but I'm going to go on a big holiday vacation to China. And I did. Uh, I went for about five or six weeks um, as a tourist. But of course, I knew enough about China to. Um, well, I, I, I fashioned my own journey, but I always do that. Uh, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't usually go on tourist. Um, Usually I don't on, on you know, tourist conducted tours, so to speak. I usually uh, do my own and take, get my own guides, um, which is, um, you know, a more complex way of doing it. But it's, it's uh, worth doing in my experience. Even when I'm taking my kids, we do the same, <laughs> which is terrible for my kids because, because I'm always dragging them from place to place and wanting to know everything. And then so, you know, they just want to get to the beach. Uh, but anyway, I went, uh, I, I did travel really quite extensively in China. Um, and I saw some out of the way places, which I knew about from reading. Um, and I was able, when, when I came back, I still didn't think I could write a book about China. Um, but gradually, because of what was going on, actually, I just kept coming back to it and thinking about it more. And um, then when I did start to try to put drafts down, I did find that even those few weeks of travel, um, when you combine it with reading, um, reading about places and so on and so forth, you, at least I do, when you go to a place, a sort of, a sort of osmosis takes place. Uh, my grandmother, who was a writer, um, wrote a lot of um, commercial novels, women's novels in the 1930s. She loved to travel and she would then use that in her novels. But one time, and she had this extraordinary capacity for, um, oddly enough, she was tone deaf, but an extraordinary eye for colour. And she, my grandfather, would sort of say, my God, how could you remember that? You, you brought it completely alive. Um, and she clearly had that that gift. Um, these are the gifts which you you get given, and you don't know how you do things. You know what I mean. And um, I, I I get I have that, and to some extent with 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 places. Um, so, but but she was able actually to create. She did one book on Peru, and she'd never been there, and she read so extensively about Peru that people who knew Peru said, "Gosh, you know the country so well," and she actually never set foot in it. Uh, in my case, it's it's a combination, and I I, I, I get at, I think I get atmosphere, and um, uh, I'd be interested to, for contemporary uh, Chinese people living in China now. I, I've consulted with quite a number of people living in China who are not Chinese. Whether whether they would feel I got it right, I hope they would. I know when I did the New Forest, which I, admittedly I did know since childhood, one of the old New Forest characters read, I asked him to read the drafts, and he just gave the dra drafts back to me and said, yeah, that, feel, that feels like the forest to me, which was all I could have asked for. Your grandfather had also been in Russia yes. in, in the Tsarist uh, age. And, and were you hearing stories of that when you were young that started to build a kernel of a story for you? Um, yeah, it was two things when I was young. Uh, first of all, they, they thought the Russians were incredibly kind people. He was there for quite a few years, uh, but unfortunately lost a lot of children there. Um, I mean, this is not uncommon in the 19th century, and especially in 19th century Russia. Uh, my grandfather lost about six children there, actually. Um, and... Um, but still managed to have another six that grew to uh, adulthood. Um, and um, so there was a sort of kind of sadness about it, but also romance. And then I, I did Russian at school, partly because I wanted... This was the grandfather I never met. He died long before I was born. I see. So um, I remember my father played a terrible trick on me. He, sh he showed... I was asking about grandfather, you see. 
and, and photographed all kinds of things. And he'd fought a duel and done all sorts of exciting things. And my father picked up a you know, fountain pen, slightly leaky fountain pen. I think he didn't want it. Anyway, and he said, this was your grandfather's, you know. I worshipped this damn pen and I got ink on my fingers for years. And finally, I said, you know, that that pen of grandfather's was terribly inky, you know. My father said, oh, yes, well, actually, I invented that. It wasn't at all. <laughs> but all I'm trying to explain is is my my um, uh, uh, devotion to the cause. I was um, I, I was fascinated by by the idea of Russia. One of my best friends actually had a mother, a fierce lady, who taught me some Russian. Who was a Cossack. God, she was tough. Um, and um, so, yeah, there was there was something there. But the great history, you know, we when we were taught, I started life as a scientist um, at school because we specialised in England in those days far too much, I may add. And uh, the supposedly bright young scientists were offered the chance to learn Russian because they thought it would be helpful to them. But the result of that was one learned some language, but actually the feel for historical Russian, Russia you know, wasn't there at all. So all of that really came, this long story, but it came really out of research when I buckled down to do that book about the subject that fascinated me. Uh, but I traveled quite a lot in Russia. I mean, I went to Russia about six times for about a month at a time. So, um, and I, I really, I really walked the territory and, and worked with people in the Writers' Union and all sorts of things. Tell me a bit about young Edward and your relationship to books when you were growing up. How, what was around you? What were the things that you grabbed onto when you were young? It's a very strange background, really. A very English mother, a father who was English by ancestry, um, but who um, had been brought up in France. Uh, his father was the one that was in Russia and then Romania and then in France. Uh, my father was part of the second family, which was born in France, as opposed to elder brothers and sisters, who I knew, who were born in Tsarist Russia. Um, and uh, he'd been in the in the army, was um, a good mathematician, a very good linguist. He spoke four languages. My grandfather had spoken 11 and um, quite widely read. Um, he actually, he rather liked James Michener. And once with enormous perception, of course it wasn't perception at all, but he said to me, you know, after he'd read The, the Source, which is a big uh, book on ancient Israel that Michener did, if you if you ever write a book, you might try and do something like this fellow. His research is magnificent. Um, but <laughs> but uh, my mother's mother was the one who was the writer. And so those were the days, you know, when people... Um, when people read a lot, shared books in the family, read to each other, when you, you would quote, I mean, we were all devotees of P.G. Woodhouse. And I say that with no embarrassment at all, because he's one of the greatest masters of the English language. Woodhouse, uh, W.S. Gilbert, as in Gilbert and Sullivan, uh, and Shakespeare, mm -hmm. um, and maybe Chaucer, but let's just say those three are probably the three greatest users of the English language who have ever lived, in my humble opinion. Um, and we quote stuff to us. I, I did the Gilbert and Sullivan operas as a little boy. So I know I know most of the Mikado and, and uh, Yeoman of the Guard by heart. Um, and so words, words meant a lot. And um, uh, when I was 11 years old, however, to get to historical novels, um, I started, I, I, I got flu quite badly and I was in bed for more than two weeks. And my mother, seeking to entertain me, because we had no television in the house. Um, uh, in fact, almost none of my family had a television uh, to this day, uh, except for my American family, who have about 13. But um, anyway, brought me a C.S. Forrester Hornblower book. And I liked that. So as it kept me quiet, she kept bringing me. And I went through the entire Hornblower series before I finished my flu. And I also read after that some fabulous, I don't know if you happen to know that author, but he wrote wonderful books on the Peninsular War, uh, The Gun and Death mm -hmm. to the French and so on. I, I've, I've read all of them. 
his attention to detail is outstanding. So probably without realizing it, I got quite picky about research in the process. Um, I read, you know, things like uh, my grandfather had liked the, the, the books of, um, nobody's ever heard of him, but Adventure Stories for Boys Out in the Empire and Beyond by a, a, a writer called Henty. Um, they're quite long too, with more at Corona, the gorilla hunters. Can you imagine? Um, so all those rather old fashioned books, uh, Conan Doyle, I read all of Conan Doyle and Conan Doyle's favorite books himself that he liked because of course he was sick to death of Sherlock Holmes, as, as you sure you know, um, uh, were, were his historical novels. Again, very well researched. Um, and Govidal later, um, Julian especially. So all those were historical novels. Um, and that the fact that I also loved studying history may well have propelled me towards trying a historical novel after I'd failed to write plays when I was younger. Now, you worked for several years as a bookseller before turning to writing. Were those were those good years? Oh, God, yes. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I tried to write my first novel uh, when I was about 21, I think, and um, it wasn't going well. It was a historical novel, I may add, set in the later Roman Empire, but it was not going well. And... Um, my parents did wonder if perhaps I might think of getting a job. Um, and by the grace of God, my, um, my tutor at Cambridge got me a job actually in political research, which uh, stood me in good stead because it gave me such a worm's eye view of the political process. I didn't have fact, two jobs like that, but then I wanted to get into publishing, which um, I had an interview with somebody who had a sort of publishing warehouse and at the end of the interview, they said, uh, you seem a nice guy, but I'm afraid you won't do for us. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, but you know, would it be helpful to, to uh, tell me why? And they said, yes, you're too ambitious. <laughs> but they said, this job is very, very boring. Um, anyway, it was, it was difficult, um, you know, to get into publishing and book selling. And then I happened, because I was sharing a flat with a whole bunch of people, um, one of whom uh, was, um, uh, for a while, was somebody called Timothy Waterston, who set up a book check, a, a chain of bookstores. The great British bookseller. He was then actually the boyfriend and later husband of the uh, sister of the guy that owned the flat. It was quite an extensive flat. There was a whole bunch of us in there uh, sharing expenses, as one dad did. Anyway, um, over the kitchen table, Tim, who is this wonderful entrepreneur who always likes breaking every rule. If you show him a rule, he will immediately break it on principle. So he then hired me um, as, um, as a marketing executive. And my first morning, I mean, I wasn't stupid, but I didn't know anything about commerce. My first morning, he gives me all the printouts and as we used to live off printouts in those days and so on and so forth, you know, for all the stock and, and various things about the marketing program. And at the end of the morning, I'd been through it all and I got a fair handle on it. He said, any questions? And I said, yes, just one. Tim, what is a discount? <laughs> and the man's face <laughs> froze. And of course he was thinking to himself, what have I done? Mind you, as you well know, once you get the idea of a discount, it's not all that difficult. And, you know, mm -hmm. I only needed to be told once or twice, like anybody else. Uh, and, you know, working for an, an entrepreneur like that, because although he was working for WH Smith, uh, it, we were a little, you know, place off on the side. He did the thing that you must do if you're working for a big corporation, but in, in a separate unit, which is do not work in the corporate building. Whatever you do, get out, um, you know, or they'll smother you. So we set up in, I don't know how well you know London, but um, in, in the middle of Soho, uh, Old Compton Street, opposite uh, a Valerie's Patisserie, but next to, to that was a sex shop. Um, and nothing to do with the sex shop, I assure you, but these were very happy years of my life we, with a whole bunch of young people <laughs> learning how to market books. 
uh, I'd been out on the road as a selling books. I have carried the salesman's bag um, and all sorts of stuff. And I, you know, I just love books. I actually love being in warehouses, just the feel of books, the smell of them. I, I don't know what it is, but I, I do. I, I love them. It has felt to me like booksellers look at the publishing world a bit differently than people who have kind of come right into the publishing side. There's something that provides perspective when you spend all day putting books directly into people's hands. Uh, Was there anything from your bookselling experience that you drew on as you became an author to see whether you could get, you know, whether you could find your audience or whether you could get kind of books into the right places? Yes. First of all, I mean, you know, so many people, if they come from outside business, especially, you know, you, you, you do have to have, although my audience is actually very varied, but anyway, you do have to have an audience in mind. You have to think about your audience. Uh, people who write plays have to think about their audience because they're sitting in front of them. Um, yes, you have to have some commercial sense. Um, and you have to know what booksellers will go for. That helps, you know, uh, not only the punters, but the booksellers. Um, it also helps to be very understanding. I mean, I remember going to a, I remember going to a conference when a, a poet turned up, a young poet, and to, it was extremely rude to all the booksellers and said, you know, you don't sell enough poetry books and I don't know why I'm bothering to talk to you and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> I thought, you know, this guy's nuts. Whether or not they sell enough, they could certainly sell fewer. (laughs) 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 Absolutely. Yeah. And I tell you another good thing you learn, actually. Well, you learn the importance of covers. Um, And also, um, you know, if you flip through a lot of books in a bookstore, you learn the importance of the first page. Or the first three pages. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you give me a script... I really only need to read the first three pages to know, or not even that, frankly, to know if it's not, you know, it's not uh, not publishable. You you kind of know at once. Your books have been translated into 20 languages. Hmm. As they have moved from country to country, was there a reception in any particular place that surprised you? Other, and I can say this because, you know, a lot of my family is French, other than the unparalleled rudeness of the French translators, who is absolutely, and pity, because I spent some time in Canada, by the way, in Quebec. Um, And, you know, naturally, I I speak French rather badly, but I mean, I'm very, very used to hearing since childhood French spoken around me. Um, (laughs) But actually, in mainland France, the (laughs) snobbery, of the French towards anything else is is breathtaking. So that was, a, and was this regarding your book on Paris as as it was being translated? Or? No, any any book. <laughs> I remember getting I remember getting a call from the guy who was translating uh, Ruska, and um, he said, "I've come to a passage, a passage of which I was rather proud, I may say, um, in eighteenth century in the eighteenth century chapter, Catherine the Great chapter." He said, "It it reads like you know." 10th rate Proust. I thought it was more like third rate Proust, but no, he said, and he said, so um, you would, may I cut it? I said, well, you, you just do what you want because it was, you know, I didn't really feel like arguing with him. And then my favorite other story in terms of reception was um, the uh, Italian publication of Serum, where they shipped over a whole uh, busload of uh, Italian journalists. And they asked me to prepare a tour for them. So I did that. And I was quite, you know, pleased, interesting, all kinds of stuff, you know. And the uh, organizers looked at it. They said, oh, this won't do at all. Uh, They've come here to eat. We did, however, visit Stonehenge. And by chance, there was an enormous storm. I mean, a third of the trees in Southern England were taken down at that particular time. And um, you know what Stonehenge looks like. And so we get there in the bus, you see, the morning after the storm uh, to Stonehenge. And everybody gets out of the bus and we look at Stonehenge. And I say, well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm, I'm sorry about the storm damage. 
And not one flicker of a smile did I get. They were all writing it down. <laughs> I don't know if they figured it out later. Um, but anyway, come the books going into print shortly after that. And I get a call from my most charming editor, in, uh, you know, Montadori, and um, actually, yes, anyway, in Italy. And um, he says, uh, I may just want to make a small change in the text. You know, Napoleon is very much seen as a hero here. And, um, you know, he's bony, the, because of course the British were terrified of him. Um, I, I think maybe, that chapter could go. And so not wishing to be disobliging, I said, I said, well, look, give me, give me a couple of days, because I was thinking frantically, you know, could that mm -hmm. work? Can I make it uh, still connect over the top, so to speak? And I probably can. I said, look, give me just give me a couple of days. I, now I will see what I'd need to do to make the links work. And we, I, it probably won't be too bad. Um, and there was a little pause. And then he said, that won't be necessary. And I thought for a moment. And then I said, where is the book now? And he said, on the printing press. <laughs> but the, the, the best part of the Russia story incident, Ruska, is that just the other day, uh, a, a few years ago, um, uh, Atticus started publishing my books in, in Russia, which they never done before. And they did all right. And to my astonishment, uh, just at the end of last year, uh, they are now publishing Ruska, which is kind of interesting. Um, and I assume nobody's asked me to change anything. The last chapter of Ruska is, in a very friendly way, honest about the state of R R Russia as it was in 1987 or 18, actually 89. This was the Gorbachev era um, and how things didn't work and that sort of thing. Anyway, Ruska is going to appear in Russian now, so that's nice. When you last visited us um, to talk about Paris, you had mentioned that you had a, a a book that was well underway or it was at least in process, which looking at the calendar now must have been the beginnings of China. But I've, I've heard that you often have multiple books on the boil at the, at the same time. No, it wasn't China. I'm forgive me, but I'm still planning to do it. So, uh, I, so I'll, let you know, find out. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know in due course what, what it was. Um, you know, sometimes they just sort of, you know, quietly fade away. And other times they sort of get urgent. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've got about, I've always got about five or six bubbling away. Is there a particular point where you, where one of them just rises to the top and you feel like that's the one that needs to uh, to come out next? Pretty much. I mean, sometimes I'd, I just recently I had two and I thought, yeah, do, I do this one or that one, and made a, a choice. But they were both they were both ready to go, so to speak, you know. Um, and then they start writing themselves in a funny way. Edward Rutherford, thank you so much for joining us. My very great pleasure, and thank you for a wonderful interview. I've been speaking with Edward Rutherford, author of Sarum, Paris, and most recently China. Find it and the other books we've been talking about, along with previous episodes of the show, at kobo.com slash conversation, or click through the show notes. Make sure to catch every conversation by subscribing wherever you listen, and leave us a review because it helps others to find us. Kaboom Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj and hosted by me, Michael Tamlin. Thank you for listening.